Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 432. This program is a merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menucha Lana and Miriam Baschayasar Altez, Yukusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basli Bafarkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todes ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altez. So we're now in the beginning of the second book of the Torah, Sefer Shmois, known as Exodus, which actually, interestingly, does reflect what the Ramban says. The Ramban says that this Sefer is called Sefer HaGu'ula. So Breshis means Genesis. When you talk about Sefer the Bamidbar, it's like called Sefer Pkudim, so that's the name for it, Numbers. Deuteronomy, I never figured out what that means. <laughs> I guess it means the fifth book, maybe. And Vayikra uh, is Leviticus. We're there, Tedus Koyanim. I don't know, Leviticus, that's what it actually means. But regardless, Sefer Shmei, Sefer Agu'ula, is the Ramban calls it. Even though the first two and a half chapters are about Golis Mitzrayim and the depths of it, the abyss, the darkest of the dark, to the point that Moshe was afraid to enter to Pari. And God had to say, come with me. And yet the whole Sefer is called Sefer Gul. So we'll discuss that. We'll also speak about this week is Chav uh, Tevis. 20 of Tevis is the yard site of the Rambam. And another variety of very fascinating questions. Thanking you again for your input, the interest. I mean, the questions continue to surprise me just the sheer amount and the sheer variety and the sheer diversity of it all. After all these years, we're talking about over nine years, life clearly has many questions, and uh, this uh, program very much reflects that. So I thank you for that, and it's a good opportunity to welcome those that are here for the first time or those that have been here before this program, that uh, we have a dedicated website, chassidahsupply.com, where you can find, firstly, the archives of all previous programs. They're all time-stamped, which means you can find the topic and just go straight there, um, as well as a forum where you can anonymously submit any question and many other, I would say, valuable resources in how to learn chassidus, how to teach chassidus, applying it to our lives in a very personal, emotional, psychological way. We're just beginning to create now a page for Yuchvat, being that it's already 30 days within the 30-day period before Yuchvat. Yuchvat is, of course, the anniversary of the Rebbe's leadership, as well as the anniversary of the Friedrich Rebbe's passing, 1950. So now we're talking about um, 73 years ago. And um, so this year we learned the, the, the chapter that corresponds in Basiligani, the classic magnum opus, the the seminal discourse that the was last was the last one published of the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Rebbe delivered it the first time. He said, he said a mimer the first year in Tavshin Yud Aleph in 1951 when he assumed leadership officially, and every year after that he would t- focus on one of the chapters in the 20 chapters of this discourse. So this year is chapter 13. So I begun teaching it, and uh, you go to um, chassidusapply.com. Uh, probably slash Yuchvat, and you'll be able to find uh, resources around that as well. I'll be, share, I'll be teaching those classes for the next few weeks leading up to uh, Yuchvat. 
So please take advantage of all these resources. And with that, let us go straight into the topic at hand. So we'll begin with Shmois, being that this is the week of Shmois, and it's the beginning of a very critical event that uh, you could say a historical event, a watershed moment in the life of the Jewish people. This is when they begin to be forged as a people. Till now, the book of Genesis was really the story of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, the foundations of our people. But now comes, firstly, the heavy price of a very severe bondage for hundreds of years where the Jews were enslaved as the Pasha begins, that till now they were living in a beautiful way. 17 years, the last 17 years of Yaakov's life, as we learned in the last week's chapter, was the best years of his life. And the Jews lived protected, honored, and respected. But then, a new king, a new leader arose. Whether it was an actual new leader or a new leader who made believe that he forgot everything that happened till then. In other words, he changed his disposition, his state of mind, as the two opinions. But regardless, a new stage and here he turned on the Jews, seeing them as an enemy, and in a wily and shrewd way, had them enslaved. When you read it, it reminds you very much how the Yemach the Nazis also shrewdly manipulated the Jews, not letting them to know their true intentions. And here we begin a long exile, not a few years, I'm talking about hundreds of years, but it's 210 years, with exact numbers depending on the severity of this uh, Egyptian exile, which included bondage, slave labor, absolutely genocide, the killing of all the boys at some point that would be born. And in general, it's just the whole oppression and affliction, which really is the first documented discrimination of a people against a people in the Bible, and of course becomes a classic story that has been repeated many, many times, one of the most famous stories in history, the story of Exodus. The Egyptian exile and the Egyptian exodus. And many have, many, have, many have compared their own exodus, whether it was the abolition of slavery, whether it was the founding of this country, to the exodus from Egypt and the journey toward the promised land. So, as I said before, the Ramban calls this a Sefer Agu'ula, the entire chapter, the entire book because it's all part of one narrative. The narrative is not one of exile, the one is, is one of Geula. But to get to Geula, you often have to go through difficult times. As we see now, coming to Mashiach, the Geula HaMittis Vashlema, the Geula Asida, Kimet Seiz Chameretz Mitzrayim Aren it's similar to what was in Egypt. It's following at close to 2,000 years of a bitter Golas, of a bitter exile called Golas Edem, it's not Golas Mitzrayim now. Now it's called Golas Eden. And yes, things are a lot better today than they were a few hundred years ago, or even a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago in the Soviet Union was the, the terrible oppression and the closing down of all Jewish schools and all Jewish life as much as possible as the communists tried to and the Bolsheviks tried to accomplish with the rest of the Friedrich Rebbe in the coming years. Now, in Europe, things were not much better. It was just the beginning, but a little later... 90 years ago would be the rise of Nazism, and we know what that led to. So we're talking about 100 years ago. The last 190, 80, 70 years ago, things were really horrible. But we always understand them as It's a descent in order to get to a greater ascent. All this affliction is in order to become greater. 
So that doesn't justify and doesn't answer why we suffer, but it does tell us that there's purpose. And the purpose means that we don't know why it happens, but we know what we can do about it, that we can grow from it and become the greater nation. And as indeed, because of Mitzrayim, because of the affliction, because of the oppression, because of the slavery, the Jewish people were forged, Kur HaBarzel, into an indestructible nation. They became a nation, and then when they left Egypt and went to marching toward Mount Sinai, they became, they received the mandate of God that would change history forever, a formal mandate. And from then on, the Jewish people, well, even earlier, you talk about the patriarchs, but especially from then on, the Jewish people served as the people of the book, a model of what a society, what a people, what a civilization is supposed to look like, driven not by self-interest, but driven by a higher service, serving, giving, virtue, justice, charity, kindness, and all the morals that today have become so popular. But they weren't popular for many years. It took thousands of years for it to become mainstream. But it just shows you the impact. And it all began, as so often began, in pain. A birthing, the birth pangs. Actually, that's what is compared to by the prophet that the leaving Egypt was like the birthing of a child. And birthing is, comes with a lot of pain. But there are things we can learn from this. We can learn of how to deal with pain. So that's the first, the first point that we need to address, is the central theme. And there's one verse that says it all. Right in the beginning of Shmois, this week's chapter, says, as they were afflicted. In direct proportion to that, they thrived, they flourished. They blossomed. Two expressions. Yana Esim is one expression. But what came out of that, for the one horrible and terrible afflictions, they blossomed, they grew, they thrived. Yirba v'yifritz. And that means both in numbers, and especially also in quality. When a people go through difficult times and they survive, they don't just survive, they come out stronger because they build a resilience, they build an immunity. And indeed, as the morale says, the morale of Prague, when the Jews left Egypt, they became Bnei Chedin, they became free people, not just technically free, they left prison, but psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, they never could be enslaved again. Their mentality was no longer possible to be enslaved. And remember, slavery is not just technical whether you're sitting in a locked place or not. It's your attitude. It's your mindset. You're my servants, God says. Not the servants of my servants. That you never again worship and never will ever succumb. Like Mordechai will not bow. We don't bow to human beings. We don't bow to man-made objects. We only have one God that is beyond us all. And that's the first and single most important lesson. Each of us, no matter what we go through in life, if it's a full-blown holocaust, real tragedy and trauma, or it's something more, not as severe, but all the setbacks that we have in life, and everybody's going to have their setbacks and their moments, it all comes down to what you do with it. We cannot control circumstances, but what you're going to do about it, how you'll navigate. And the story of, of Exodus, the story of Shemais, tells it all. 
Sefer Gaul, it's all part of Gaul. It's a stepping stone. The narrative is not over. The problem is when we think it's over, when we think something happens negative and we just stop right there and get paralyzed. So we don't let the narrative unfold. So again, this is not a justification. It's a method how to deal with it. And it worked. It's not just theory. Back then you could say, well, did it, would it work or not? But now we see what happened. The Jewish people suffered. They lost many, but they came out. Yetzim b'yad Rama. B'nei Yitzim Yetzim they came out. B'yad Rama, with upraised spirits, with upraised arms, with a, with a morale, with a dignity, with majesty. Yes, they were broken. There was much that they suffered. But at the end of the day, they became the greatest possible nation. That till this day, people marvel for such a small amount of people. The Jewish people, such a minority, literally 0.01% of the world's population, 14, 15 million people came Yirbu, among 8 billion, and yet the Roman Empire, going backwards, we'll start with the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, the Syrian, the Roman, the Ottoman, are all gone. The Spanish Empire, all gone. There's no empire left. Barely a memory. The English Empire. And here's a people that for so many years had no nation, no, no country, I should say. No money, no armies, no protection. Completely vulnerable. At the mercy of their hosts. And what happened? Because they developed that resilience. They developed that Sheyana Esam. Which doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not just because you suffer. Because you suffer, but you have faith. You're connected above, so you don't fall below. And indeed, that's the story. What do we read in this week's chapter? We read how when Pharaoh heard from his stargazers that what? That a man would rise and redeem the Jewish people. So he came up with a brilliant idea. Let's kill all the boys. All the boys that are born will be thrown into the river Nile. And that way, this man will never rise to be a leader. He'll never grow up to be a leader. What happened? The men said, the Jewish men said to their wives, you know, we have to at least temporarily stop having relations, stop having children. Because look, what the, all the boys will be killed. And the woman said, what does that mean? We were promised. We know we were promised. Abraham, our great-grandfather, was promised that we'd be servants in a, in a foreign land and we'll serve there, but then we'll come out with great treasure. If we don't have children, how will we ever leave this God-forsaken place? What about the decree? We'll find ways. So yes, many boys were tragically killed, but the woman found ways, the Talmud tells us. Some went out to the fields, and they gave birth there. Yocheved, the mother of Moshe Rabbein, who would ultimately be the savior, the redeemer. She found a way. She crafted a waterproof basket, put her son in there, her newborn child, put him on the river Nile, and we know the story, as, the, as this week's chapter tells us. He was discovered there by the daughter of Pari, and she brought him up, and he was saved. So the one boy that had to grow up to be the, the, the Redeemer was, became the Redeemer. And because of this, we're told, In the merit of the Jewish women, they were redeemed from Egypt. 
because the women had that deeper faith. They didn't go with logic and statistics and so on. And that's what gave them the strength. So no matter what they went through, they always had something they, were, they held on to. And when you hold on to eternal values and to eternal truths and eternal faith and trust, that gives you the power to overcome even the most difficult challenges on earth. Viktor Frankl put it in the context of a secular psychology, man search for meaning, meaning and purpose. When there's purpose to life, you can get through anything. But the Torah says it all in one verse. Kashiyana esem ken With the extended story as it develops. So the lesson to us is a powerful lesson on all levels. We don't compare pain, we don't compare suffering. When a person suffers, that's their suffering. You don't say, oh, you know, other people have suffered more. That's not the point. The point is other people have learned, taught us how you grow through it and how you can grow. We all know the confidence that's built when you see that someone who's been there and has gone through it. I mean, it's the basis of all training, of all internships, of all residency, apprenticeships. You learn from those that are experienced, and what do you learn? That you could do it. Early on, you may feel you have the skills, but do you have the confidence to do it? In the military. So, new soldiers... What do they do? They study and they learn from their superiors who've been there, seasoned veterans, and say, we can do it. It's difficult at times, but we've been there. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, and that changes everything. Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe would quote from the Friedrich Rebbe that there was a custom in some armies that when they went out to war, even before they began the battle, they would sing a song of victory. You haven't even fought one battle. Why are you singing a song of victory? You sing that after the war, after you win. Because it was the confidence that they knew for sure we can win. In the words of the Tur, why do Jews wear white when they go into Rosh Hashanah? Because even though the custom was that when you're not sure whether you're guilty or not guilty, you wear black. The guilty wear black. But the ones that are, that are acquitted, that are innocent, they wear white. So Jews are so confident they'll be innocent, even before the Day of Judgment, they already wear white. Psychologically, it's an attitude that you are a winner. And that gives you additional power to actually do win. So the lessons are bound to helping us deal with any given situation we're in. Just read this chapter and read the end of the story. And you see, it's a Sefer HaGaula. It's not a Sefer HaGolas. It's a Sefer of Gaula. Okay. And I will say many, many of the questions that come in even though they're all different, they all reflect different experiences, but, but a large number do deal with how to deal with pain, how to deal with suffering, with setbacks, with challenges at home, with children, with spouses, personal challenges. So I'm not suggesting there's one blanket answer, but the formula that we learned in this week's chapter really can apply to every given situation. And even again, even if someone is not in any severe, thank God, situ- if, if crisis, Nevertheless, we all go through our moments. Remember the narrative. The narrative is Geula. We're marching toward Geula no matter what the setback is. It's a road, a journey toward redemption. Personal and global redemption. Okay, let's now deal with a few questions, address a few questions that came in, all about this parsha. But before I do, I want to address one question that came in that it's a very good segue from what I just 
discussed, and that is, what can I say to a friend who's suffering from a terminal illness? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm asking for your advice. A friend from yeshiva that, in, that is in his early 40s and who was living abroad was diagnosed with a brain tumor of which modern science has not yet found a cure. He came back to Crown Heights to spend as much time as possible with his friends and family. He understands the seriousness of the diagnosis and knows that without a miracle or a new treatment that is, not cur- that is not currently available, his time left here in the physical world may not, may, not, may not be a long time, God forbid. I plan on visiting him this week and I ask you this. What is something I can say to him to cheer him up and offer him hope without accidentally saying the wrong things that might upset him? Thank you and may Hashem bless anyone that isn't well with a refur shlema immediately. Amen to that. And let me begin firstly with my blessings and prayers. I'm sure I represent everyone that's listening and anyone that's aware of this. And we could even say that even if they're not aware, blessing and prayer to your friend that he should have a miraculous recovery. Just as these things come, they could also go. I remember a story that the Rebbe told a doctor, a doctor who had uh, written off a person who had Yana Machla and gave him very little time. He said to him, you know, you can go home this Shabbos. It'll probably be your last Shabbos. There's nothing more we can do for you. So the man wrote to the Rebbe. I think this is around 1985. And he wrote to the Rebbe, that's what the doctor told him. That Shabbos, the Rebbe spoke a sikh. It was the Rambam, they were learning Hilchas Trefus. What means Tref? The Rebbe explained, Tref means a terminal illness or a terminal, or terminal wound. That if an animal has a wound, even though right now they're alive, but basically it's just a matter of time, that, that renders it Tref. So the question is, who determines which wound or which illness is terminal? Maybe it could heal. That's what Teda comes, Teda Samus. The Teda, which represents Hashem's wisdom, knows and tells us what is considered treif, what is not, what is considered terminal. No one else can determine that. The Rebbe continues, he says, when a doctor is told, you were given permission to heal. And that also required permission. To heal, not to kill. Not to diagnose someone not to kill, meaning you're trying to kill, but not to diagnose someone that you are, that person is going to die. That's not your domain. You can say, I did everything I can. It is God that gives life and determines what is terminal and what not terminal. So, obviously there's a thing called Erechateva and there's doctors and we understand we have to take it seriously and do whatever is possible. But let me begin with the first thing by saying there's no thing terminal. Only God knows what's terminal. Now, whether you should say this to the person or not depends on the situation, depends on his state of mind. may not always be helpful. You can tell him the story and let him apply it as he says for it. I wouldn't tell him because you want to also be sensitive. A person is in a place like that. Say, oh, you're giving me now just creating false hopes. So you have to say it in the right way, but telling the story of the Rebbe that there is a neighbor. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that we're here for you and you're alive, thank God. And whatever we can do, we will continue to do and pray. And miracles happen. And take, going back to taking the cue from this week's chapter, look, anyone would have written of the Jewish people after what they went through in Egypt. And look what happened. So I'm with you, and we're with you. We're going to do everything possible to fight. Because part of the goal is not just to talk about cheer them up. But part of the goal is actually to empower the person. We know the immunity of a human being 
gets stronger when there's a will to fight. You see friends, family. You see, God forbid, someone in a hospital or someone not well. And they have no guests, no friends, and no family, and no gifts. That helps demoralize the person. And you like lose, and that person, God forbid, starts losing the will to fight. When you're surrounded with friends and support and family and upbeat attitude, it doesn't take away what's happening right now, but it strengthens the person's will to fight. There's a reason. I believe this is all part of what you should be doing. So this Hashgokha Pratis comes in right now, this question literally in the last few days. We're, about, we're, we're beginning Pasha Shmais. You have the lesson right there. And the negative can be the, 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 ca- the springboard that catapults us, that propels the person into that place. That's part of how I would approach it, with the right sensitivity and over, with the right empathy, but not like, oh, what's happening, and let's all sit and cry. Obviously, respect the person's feelings and all of that, but you come to add this element. I think the story with the Rebbe that I just mentioned is an excellent story to tell. I'll tell another story that I heard recently, which I don't know if this is appropriate for this, but it's just a story that comes to mind. I heard it from Ramendel Marazov, we were both visiting someone in a hospital, and he told him the time of the Rebbe Rashab, in Lubavitch, there wasn't a doctor. There was what they called a felsha, which was like a type of paramedic. His name was Rabbi Avram the Felsha. So one day, I think it was the summer, Rabbi Rashab is sitting outside, and he sees Rabbi Avram walking by. Avram, the, the paramedic. And he calls him over. Rabbi Avram had a long beard. Rabbi Rashab says to him, You know, Rabbi Avram, I don't like doctors. A doctor, taptavant. A doctor is touching a wall. Like he's, you know, he's feeling around. The difference between a good doctor and a bad doctor is a bad doctor is like a blind person that's touching a wall. And a good doctor is like a seeing person. But you, you, when a Jew comes over to you with a problem, the first thing you do is you grab your beard. You say, Oi, lamizan, lamizan. let's see. So right away you're already a head start. The right side of the beard is Atik Yemen, high level in Keser. The left side of the beard is Arichampin. So you're already being drawing down the Yud Gimel Midas Arachimim and the highest levels of spiritual divine energy. So you're already ahead of the game. So this is not in any way to diminish doctors. God gave them power and permission, and they've done wonderful things. But it's important to know there are mysteries that we don't fully know. And we want to also invoke the Atik and the Arich and so Okay. And I hope this helps not just with this question, but with other people who have similar questions and similar situations. But again, your friend should have a complete refu shlema, like in a way like as if all this never happened. And on the contrary, just more strength and more power in many long and healthy years. Again, since we're already on the topic, I'm going to get back to Pastor Shmei shortly. So someone asked the question, the difference of Tanya Shara Betochen regarding Betochen. So Betochen is trust. You know, it's become very popular lately. And in general, the Rebbe would answer many people who had challenges to study Shara Betochen in Cheves Halavavos. So here the, the, the person writes, Rabbi Jacobson, I would appreciate it very much if you could answer the following question at your very earliest convenience. What is the relationship between 
The Tanya Shara B'Tachim Cheves Alabavis. In terms of the most effective and efficient way to deal with life's challenges. Thank you for, your, for providing light in the darkness. So firstly, we know that the Alter Rebbe, of course, like with all Svarim, but Cheves Alabavis is one of the Sifri say, one of the foundational works that the Alter Rebbe used. We know the Reish Chachma, Shalah, Maral, Sofrim V'Seifrim. But Shcheves Alavaz is clearly that Alta Rebbe brings it in a number of places. And as I said, the Rebbe sent people to reach out of Betochen. Even though in Tanya it also talks elements of Betochen and Amunah. I have not seen anywhere formally by the Rabbeim explain the difference between the approaches. Is there a difference in the way the Cheves Alavaz explains Betochen and that Alta Rebbe does? The only place where there's a, a formal mimer that discusses it. I discussed last week when Yosef relied on the chief cupbearer, the Sarah Mashkim, to remember him when he goes to Pare. He was in prison. It says, Mashkim. He didn't remember him. It says it was a punishment because Yosef should not have relied on him. And the question is, the Cheves is the Maimorim bring this Mashkim in the Maimor in Eratera. In the parshas at the end of Vayeshev, it's a Maimon Tofresh Ayin Zayin. I think last year week I said a different sefer. It's Tofresh Ayin Zayin, Maimon Tofresh Peches, and other places. So what? So the Chavis Alavovus says that it's part of B'tochen is trusting that God will find ways. Sibis, and ways means shluchim. Harbish shluchim lamokim. So why not rely that the Sar Hamashkin? So because Yisuf was on a higher level, and the higher level. He should have relied that Abish himself would do it. He shouldn't have got into it. If wants to use the Sarah Mashkim, that's his business. But he shouldn't have relied on that. So you see there somewhat of a, another level of Betochen that the Shara Betochen does not discuss, if I recall correctly. So I'm not going to necessarily say, however, that the Betochen that the Shara Betochen does, that the Shevet Salavovitz does discuss, is different the way Chesidus. The best proof is that Rebbe sends people to learn Shara Betochen. That means it's consistent with Chesidus. And there he focuses on this topic very directly. In Tanya and other places of Chassidus, you have discussion on it. The famous Sikh of the Rebbe, Tragud Vedzayingud, of course. So I don't know if we can make a, a, a global distinction between the two. I would say it complements each other. And ultimately it's the idea that God is Mashgiach and runs everything. And we do, shouldn't allow ourselves to become aggravated and over, overly anxious because God runs the show. So it's natural for a person, obviously, to become anxious, but that's the challenge, and that's the Aved of Betochen. And we have a history that helps us. As I said before, if this happened the first time, and you're wondering whether you'll succeed, but we have, look at the history of the Jewish people. The Betochen and Amunah of the Nashim Sedkonis, of the Jews in general, they came out of Mitzrayim, and they came out of every Sada. Whether it's the Ness of, of uh, Sias Mitzrayim, whether it's the Ness of Purim, of Hanukkah, and throughout history. So we have something to stand on. And we've seen that when you connect, when you're bound above, you don't fall below. So all this is part of helping a person build Betochen. And then the Shara Betochen goes through the Cheves HaLavaz, there's many details, which is not here the place to go into it. So, even though you don't ask the difference, the relationship would be they complement each other and everything you learn 
Shara Betochen, you learn, for example, in chapter 26 in Tanya, where he speaks about why depression, asphus, is such a bad thing, because it weakens you, it paralyzes you. The opposite of that is recognizing that there are strengths that you have. Don't allow yourself to get demoralized by the negative, even if a negative thing happens. It's another form of betochen. So when you read that in Tanya, you read the Shara Betochen, they all complement each other. That's how I would explain it. And again, very fitting to this time, the famous Sikh of the Rebbe, Tragur Vizangur, is also in Pasha Shmois and brings a lot from Shara Betochen, which you can look up and look at the Sikh Shmois. I believe it's a volume, uh, Lamed Vov, I believe. Lamed Vov or Lamed Aleph. Yeah, one of the two. Okay, let's go back now to Pasha Shmois. I know we went this direction, but that's uh, but so be it. What does it mean that the house lit up when Moshe was born? Tomorrow is by space by era. Is this a metaphor, or was there actually a physical bright light in the home of Yecheved and Amram? How can we get a similar bright light to come into our homes so we can read at night and save money on our electric bills? Okay. Again, this uh, somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek tone. The first half, it's not about saving electric bills. I'm sure you wanted to say, not putting words in your mouth, but how can we also create such a light, a Moshe Rabbeinu light? It's more than just a physical light, obviously. So, the fact of the matter is, when you come into a home and you feel a vibe, an illuminating vibe, an elevating vibe, it's both physical and ethereal. It's physical in the sense that you feel it. You can be palpably feel it. Feel it. But for obviously, it's much more of a mood, much more of a spirit. So I don't know if commentaries talk exactly for fill the light as a light, but we understand what it means. Moshe Rabbeinu was born. Moshe Shal Yisrael. So when a neshama like that comes into this world, every child that's born we know brings a joy. You can say a light into the home. You bring a new child home. A light into the family. But Moshe, the Torah specifically states it. And how can we so-called replicate it? So the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya already that there's a Moshe within each one of us. Which means when we connect to a Moshe, which is Tadus Moshe, and the behavior of Moshe, of living up to be a Isha Lekim, a divine person, when you do that, you're bringing light into your life, into the, your home, into the world around you. Very straightforward. When you bring a child into this world, you surround the child with psukim, with verses and with holy objects, and with just a state of holiness, that's Kedusha, that's Eir. That's Eir key. that's divine light. Does it also have physical manifestation? It can. When we lighten the Neir Shabbos, and it says that's a, that helps children, bring children that are going to be Yiddish Shemayim and to be, to be the merit to children, Tamid Chacham, scholars and divine and pious people. Why? Because even lighting a Shabbos candle, even though it's a physical candle, mostly it's also a spiritual light. So light is connected to light. That's how I would explain this. Okay. The name Moshe. 
Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your ongoing video broadcasts. May Hashem give you ever-increasing vigor to continue what you do. Thank you. My question is why Moshe is called Moshe, a name given to him by Pharaoh's daughter, and not the name, the Gemara tells us, Tev, Tuvia, there's different opinions, given to him by Amram and Yechevet. It's a question we've addressed in the past, but it's a very good question, because, I mean, it's also you could say disrespectful. Amram and Yechevet have a child. And they gave him a name. Why would that name... It's only mentioned in the Gemara, Medrashim. And which name is mentioned? Fari's daughter. And what's the name? Moshe from the name Minamayim Mishisihu. So there's a Maimer from the Alta Rebbe, Teira Eir, Nishmois, and explains what the meaning of the name is. And when you understand that, you understand why it captures, that she captured the essence of what Moshe is. Not to take away from the other names. What means Minamayim Mishisihu? From water... I drew him out from water. Okay, so back to the question. So that's a technical matter. He happened to be in a basket in the water and she drew him out. That's why now his name is drawn. Uh, it's something much deeper. Moshe was a neshama from Almedeskasia, from the hidden worlds of water, where water represents the hidden worlds. That's why everything is submerged beneath the water. And land, Yabosha represents Almedesgali, the, the revealed worlds. Difference between thought and speech. Thought is concealed. All the ideas and all the words that we think are all concealed in the energy of thought. Nobody else sees it except, no one else feels it or senses it except you. It's hidden. Dibur is like Yabosha. You reveal your words, you express it to another. Moshe came from the world of Ahmed Iskasya. Like he explains there, the second Shemitah, the first Shemitah, because he came from a much deeper place. And that explains also why he had difficulty speaking. Dibur is Gilui. Moshe is Machshav. The classic Sikh of the Rebbe, Gimel Shvat, Tavshinun Beis, a few weeks before the stroke, talked about this at length. A golos a dibur hoye begolos by Moshe. But kfat ped, kfat loshen, aral svasayim, all different expressions how Moshe had difficulty speaking because he was higher, not because he was lower, God forbid. And yet, which we learn in this week's chapter, who gives man a mouth to speak? God, I speak through you. And this man of no words, becomes the person, his words, repeated and learned and studied and delved into more than any other word of any human being on earth. In all of history, the best-selling book, the Torah, the Bible, this man of no words, because his words were real words. They weren't just gilui. They were coming from that world of deep machshava, and, and the bridge, the two, the machshava into deeper. It says by Martin Taylor, the Medjur says that Moshe was healed. But regardless, that's why his name is Moshe, because that captured, Minamai Moshe Su, whether she knew it or not, captured the essence why he was indeed placed on water. Because that's where he came from. That was the world he was drawn from. Minamai Mishisu, drawn from Almediskas into Almediskali to bridge the highest levels of the divine, the highest levels of Sosim, the Stimen, the Chol Stimen, the highest levels of concealment and hidden worlds, to bridge that and bring it into the revealed world. What is Teda if not that? That's Teda. Chem de Gnuza, Araisa Vekitshe Brichu Kulachad, it's one with God. And the Teda Yardav Nosa, 
as the Alter Rebbe explains, it descended and evolved all the way down to this level, to bridge and give us the ability to transform this revealed world, but align it with the highest, deepest hidden worlds. That's Moshe. And that's why his name, we remember Moshe, Zichru Teres, Moshe Avdi Teres, Sivalana Moshe, the only name you find in the Teres. Because it captures the very essence. You can ask, why didn't Amram and Yechevet realize that and give the name Moshe? We know that Arizal says that it's a mini Ruach HaKedosh, a mini prophecy that parents have to give a name. That I've never seen that question asked. But you can say perhaps because it's Afke Pari's daughter. Remember, it's a transformation of the lowest of the low. Ervis Ha'aris Pari was Tan Hagodl, the great serpent the darkest of the dark. His daughter gives the name. It's like, To cut down the tree, you need the wood of the tree, which is the handle of the axe. So perhaps it was Dafkar that sensed this power, because then it gives the power of Moshe to come from the highest of the high, all the way down into Pari, into the house of Pari, where he grew up, and transform it and ultimately redeem the Eden in the fullest sense of the word. So there's an exception in this case that wasn't Amram and Yechev, but it was Dafka, the daughter of Pari. I've not seen that, so that's a Yeshlema Bedera Chevshir, meaning it's possible. Obviously, always open to hearing other explanations, or if there's something that I haven't seen, please share, and I will share it with uh, our audience. Okay. Next question. How does Chassidus explain the test Pari gave Moshe with a plate of diamonds and the plate of hot coals? So we know the story. The stargazers had told Pare that a man, a boy would grow up into a man who would become the redeemer of the Jewish people. He's, he will be your ultimate enemy. So Pare decrees that all the Jewish boys should be killed. Little did he know that this boy was growing up in his own home, as we just discussed. But once when the boy was playing, since he grew up in the home, he was playing with Pare and he, and he would grab his crown. Pari, the Egyptians were very superstitious. Everything was an omen. Grabbing the crown, what does that mean? So he asked his advisors, what should he do about it? So he had three advisors, we know. It was Bilam, Eyuv, and uh, Yisrael. Bilam said, kill the child immediately. It's a bad sign. It's a sign that he's going to threaten your crown, your leadership. Yisrael said, don't do anything. He's just a little child. He doesn't know better. It's just playing around. And Eev said, the Medrash tells us, let's test him. Put in front of him two plates, a plate of precious jewels and diamonds, a plate of hot coals. And if he's an intelligent child, he's going to choose, of course, the, the pearls or the jewels. So you'll know that he's smarter than, uh, than most little children. And there's a threat here. Moshe was about to grab that plate of the precious stones, and a malach came, moved his hand, and he grabbed the coals. And what does a child do? He put the coal to his mouth. And that's what the Medr says. He burned his mouth, and that caused the, the speech defect, so to speak. The truth is, Beruchnius, as I just explained, it came from a place that he came from, Makhshova. But Begashmi, that's how it evolved. There are many lessons you can learn from this. The first lesson is we always have two choices. You're going to choose the Yetzir Tev or the Yetzir Har. Even though it may be appealing, may be warm and hot, but it burns you and is dangerous. Then there's the Yetzir Tev. 
So that's a lesson we all can learn from it. Not that Moshe was presented with that, but that was the idea. A smart child is going to choose, of course, the precious stones. A deeper lesson you could say is that even when a person, God forbid, does choose the wrong thing, it could also reflect a deeper element when you do tshuva that reveals that, that hidden level of machshava deeper, than, higher than dibur. And also teaches about advisors, that there are people who are just bad people. And right away say, kill the child. There are people who are good people, and always amalam etzchus, and protect those that are good. Maybe Yisrael must have seen or known. He wasn't a fool. And Eov was this uh, wishy-washy, nishtahed nishtahed. And, and actually caused, could have caused major problem because had Moshe taken the jewels, they would have killed him. So many lessons can be learned from it. And these are some that come to mind. I have not seen Chassidus talk about it, this particular story, or the Rebbe and the Sichus. But again, there may be something that I've not seen. If somebody has more information, please share it, and I too will share it. Is there significance that our forefathers and Moses were shepherds? Is there something about the job of a shepherd that makes a person more conducive to receive a prophecy? Living in New York City today, is this concrete, in this concrete, concrete, in concrete jungle, there aren't big herds of cattle running around, so the job of shepherd is obsolete. Is there a job in today's day that has the spiritual equivalence to a shepherd that some one can do, can do if they want to emulate what our forefathers did. Yes, well, the Medrash says, why Moshe, Moshe HaYeroya? That's the first description of Moshe as a shepherd. And the Medrash tells us why, the same thing by Dovid HaMelech. Because God leads, tests his leaders with sheep. He sees how they treat sheep. Moshe had a big herd of sheep. And the story goes, the Medrash tells us that he was once they were grazing. And Moshe sensed and realized one small sheep wandered away. So right there you have the fact that he knew from thousands of sheep, one sheep wandered. And he went looking for it. And it was a while. The sheep had wandered quite a while, quite a distance. And he found the sheep sipping some water from a brook. It was thirsty. And Moshe put it to the sheep on his shoulder and carried it back to the herd, to the flock. So Hashem said, if that's how a man is sensitive to a sheep, he's the person I want to give my sheep, the people. And that's why Moshe is called Roya Neman, faithful shepherd. Roya, Roya Yisrael, the shepherds of Israel. The same thing we talk about the Ovis and, and, and the patriarchs and others who were shepherds. Same thing with Abdovid Amel, the Medrash tells a similar story about his sensitivity of how he fed the sheep. So that's the first thing. It's a sign of true mentors, empathy and sensitivity. Chassidus further explains that sheep are docile they re- and they represent a certain edelkeit. There's a whole sikha from the Rebbe, I believe it's in Cheli Tezvov, on Saint Yaakov, Saint Lovon, where Yaakov was a shepherd of Lovon, the idea of what sheep represent. There it actually brings also from Kabbalah and Chassidus that the three types of sheep that he bred Akudim, Nekudim, Verudim represent three spiritual worlds. So sheep are representative of a particular type of hamshacha, of transmission that is a refined transmission. And that's why sheep have that as a docile element. They're not aggressive. They're not violent. 
and the Ovis and the Moshe, when they graze, the sheep graze, it's very conducive to be able to meditate, to think about God, to study, to learn, to pray. So that's on a very basic level. And in that context, all of us should be shepherds. Shepherds of other friends, of strangers, of everyone we meet. Shepherds of souls. We shepherd someone, that's the expression. Guide, protect, sensitivity, help, support. That's a simple lesson, that each of us has that moisture inside of us to do that. If everything Hashem does is good, next question, if everything Hashem does is good, whether we see it or not, and Moshe Rabbeinu was a prophet who certainly knew that everything Hashem does is good, why would Moshe challenge Hashem in Shmois 522 at the end of the Pasha by saying, which is, translated, which is translated as, why have you done evil to this nation? Why, should, why would Moshe accuse Hashem of doing harm and evil if Hashem is perfect and doesn't make mistakes and only does good? And I'll just add to the question, as we learned before, it's a Sefer Agula, that even the negative things are also for positive. Moshe didn't know that. But there comes the other side of the coin. When, it's, when a person is in pain and sees others in pain, you cry out. You don't just say there's hidden good and let's all celebrate. Why do we sit shiver, Rahman al-Islam, no one should ever know of it? You could say everything God is for the good. person died, there's always deeper purpose. Let's just embrace it. Okay, beside the weakness of a human being, you say that, okay, I need a little time to, to be consoled, to lick my wounds, to grieve. But you see, even Sadiqim, even people are completely aligned. No, a person who doesn't shit shiva is considered a cruel person. Because in this world, Teva Nideva Nigla, God says, yes, everything is for the good. But I want it to be also revealed that you see it as good. And as long as you don't, you cry out. So though Moshe was criticized, but nevertheless, you see afterwards, he was actually rewarded with the Shem Avaya in the next week's chapter. You see people crying. How could you not be sensitive? How could you not be uh, empathetic? How could you not say... And interesting, he doesn't accuse Pare for bathing in the blood of Jewish children, God forbid. He doesn't, even doesn't even say, God, why are you allowing evil? He points a finger at God because he knew that ultimately God controls everything. You're doing evil. Is it sharp words? Yes, it is. But God wants us to challenge God. That's what davening is about. Because you could say the same thing. A person, God forbid, sick in a hospital. What chutzpah do you have to challenge God and say, I want him to heal? God knows best. Accept it. Say till him that, the, that things should... You could say till him that everything should go right. But God controls it. Why are we trying to change the, the plan? Because that's what Hashem wants. He wants partners. He doesn't want passive observers. Now what Hashem does at the end is ultimately going to be his, his choice. So He wants our empathy. He wants our concern. While we also know that the deeper betochen, that no matter what, at the end of the day will be good. Trach good vedzayin good. But if you see something, cry out. It will be insensitive. Hilchas tiny as the Alter Rebbe begins. Why do we fast? Because it's insensitive to say it just happened. He doesn't say this, but it would also be in a sense to say, God did it, and why, why should we think about it? No. It's a time of introspection and soul-searching and do whatever you can to repair the situation. And, re- and reveal the deeper good that we believe is in there. To reveal it, not just to leave it dormant and concealed. 
since we're talking about this topic, it also goes back to what we spoke about earlier. Does Chassidus say that pain is not a punishment, but rather pain is doing us a favor by letting us know that, that there's a problem that needs to be corrected? There is an aspect of that, absolutely. So even though I just said pain has to be challenged, and we should say we don't want pain, we don't want suffering, but the fact of the matter is, just as it is physical pain, pain is a warning, it's a red flag. If we didn't have nerves to feel pain, God forbid, we could end up really hurting ourselves, destroying ourselves. So even though the pain itself we don't like, but the pain is telling you there's a problem, go do something about it. It's like a smoke alarm. It's like a telling you there's a problem. So Chassidus in general does not talk about punishment as reward and punishment, but as cause and effect. That due to particular behavior, you put your hand in fire, it gets burned. That's not a punishment. It's a cause and effect. The same thing is with any type of behavior is ultimately cause and effect. The fact that we don't always see that a behavior, a destructive behavior, causes damage is because our eyes are blinded. Al-Tareb explains in the Geras HaTshuva that the reason there's no Kodesh today at age 60 is because of the helm of Golas, so things are not aligned below as they are above. But the fact of the matter is, every behavior of a person, especially spiritual behavior, has effect for the good or the negative, even if we don't feel it. So actually, so pain is basically warning us to do something. Just like I speak about the marble, that God didn't make the marble right away. He wanted first to come rain. He wanted to show the people, do something about it. Do tshuva. It's a warning signal. When you feel pain, don't ignore it. Do something, nip it in the bud. That's how I would explain this. Are we allowed to make fun of the villains in the Torah, such as Esau, Parai, Dosan, and Aviram, Kedach, for example? Or since they are mentioned in the Torah, are we still supposed to revere them? So in generally making fun of people, well, even villains, is not the approach. We don't even rejoice when our enemies fall. Yes, we're happy that they're no longer an enemy and that God intervened, but it should be a sad day. It's a sad day because the fact that someone could have become such an enemy and fall to that level, we don't, it's not a personal thing. Obviously, it's personal protection, but ultimately... It's like we cry. We should cry for that. That's why when the Egyptians were drowning and the angels were singing praise, Hashem says, my creatures are drowning in the water. Why are you singing praise? You should be crying. Yes, we're, we're happy that the enemies are being destroyed, but we're not singing praise because we should be crying that, they, that it came to that. So in general, I don't know if the word making fun is the right expression, but it's an interesting question in general. As a matter of fact, in the Maimon of the Rebbe in Tov Shemem Gimel, that corresponds to the 13th chapter in Basiligani, Tovshin Yud, he talks about why in the Torah you find Klippus and all these negative uh, stories and negative people and bad people. And talks about how in the Torah it's Yaakov of Esav Amurim Baparsha. That when it's written in the Torah, it has an element of Torah in it, and Torah gives us the power to transform and to actually reveal the source of where these individuals come from in their highest levels. So though, yes, literal in the verse, we're talking about really real villains and terrible people. But even Lovan, we talk about Lovan Lamata is a, a Russia, a shrewd liar, a conniver. But Lovan is also rooted in Levan Elian, in the highest levels of supernal whiteness in Keser. Pare, we know, Ervis Ares, Pare, Tanina Godel, the great sorcerer, the great serpent to the point that Moshe was afraid to approach, to approach him. 
and Hashem had to come with Moshe. And yet we also say in Zayar, is the Kol Nehurin. Pari also comes from the word bursting forth all the lights. That's Pari Dikdush, Achashvedish. Again, we know who Achashvedish was, whatever the opinion may be. But it also says in Me'er Eir, it refers to a, a metaphor for God. Because in Zelu Umazah So there's in the Umazah, there's the negative side, as it comes down, there's how it is in Teirah. So when we talk about Kairach, or we talk about the other individuals, Pare, there's a Teirah element. And we can find the Teirah side of them and find within us these individuals as well. So it can be completely in Dusha in its highest root. It can be finding the negative of them within us, and it could be actually the, the way they played out their lives with the goal of either having them doing tshuva or them being their annihilation because of how cruel they became and how evil they became. So that addresses that issue. Okay, we talked about the terminal illness. Let's see here. Let's talk about a moment about Chav Tevis. So this week is the 20th day of Tevis. What lessons do we learn from the Rambam's Yotzeit on this day? So the Rebbe has a number of sikhs, especially he equates it with the Alta Rebbe, interestingly, whose Yotzeit is Chav Dalet Tevis, four days later. That they have similarities. They both wrote something in Nigla and something in Panimius. The Rambam, of course, Shulchan Aruch, and Tanya, Achsidus, the Rambam, Mishnah Teda and Meir Nevuchim. Though it's not Primis Ateda, but firstly the Alter Rebbe taught Meir Nevuchim with Primis Ateda, but it is definitely in the area of more Hashkofa, philosophy, if you wish. And also how they both essentially transformed the Jewish world by, by uh, codifying Teda. Shulchan Aruch, Rambam. In a very clear way. Which means they took all the Teda that came to them and put it in very clear terms in a comprehensive blueprint, which demonstrates their leadership in a unique way. Not just wrote a sefer, but a comprehensive, a, a, a blueprint, if you wish. What it comes to us is in the words of the Rambam, that he wrote the sefer Mishnah Teda to make everything very clear from all the Chalkei Teda, everything up till his time, and present us in a way that we can understand, and that's why the Rebbe established the learning of the Rambam, which encompasses the whole Torah, even things that are the laws of the Beis Amigdash, that are not Hilchus, uh, that are Hilchus of the Mashiach, that are not necessarily halachas of our time, either in the time of the Beis Amigdash or when Mashiach will come. Kol kula, when all the Jews learn it, it creates an Achdus HaTeda, Achdus Yisrael. So the Rambam represented that. He also, of course, was an activist. He fought for the Jewish people. The Geras Taman, when the, the Jews in Taman were being accused by some zealots of behaving in ways they thought were not appropriate, and Rambam came to their defense. So it wasn't just a scholar, but also a leader. And many other things that we learn about the Rambam, many similarities between the Rambam and the Altareb. What it comes down to us is bringing the Rambam into our lives today, both in learning halacha and also learning primis, the deeper reasons for Teda. Like the Altareb Shnei Eir, two, two lights, similar to the Rambam. And the Rambam also Moshe. says, Moshe ad Moshe, they come to Moshe. That he had a similarity to Moshe Rabbeinu, which is also in this week's passion. In every generation there's a Moshe. And the Rambam served that role as well. And till this day, the Rambam remains, of course, one of the giants 
that still has direct impact, even though all the scholars do, but a direct impact on each one of us. Okay. Being time is um, limited. There are a bunch of other things I wanted to address, so we'll just have to wait till next week. Just looking if I've covered everything I wanted to cover. So, with that, let us conclude this uh, week's episode of My Life, Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Go to chassidusapplied.com. Everyone should have a very healthy, illuminating, joyous week and also a joyous tummit, one that would be perpetual, should be perpetual. May we zeich merit to the geula, mitiz v'ashlema, through the learning and teaching of chassidus. Again, go to chsidasapplied.com for all these episodes and many resources, including the Yutzvat special section that we're now creating. Kol Tuv, be well and be blessed. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chsidasapplied.com slash donate.